Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And today we're returning to the war in Ukraine, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, of course. And we've got another guest on our show who I've been very interested in talking with. He's a must-follow on Twitter for anyone who's interested in Russian politics or the war in Ukraine. He doesn't tweet in English, so I have to look at his tweets through Twitter Translate. But uh, he's, again, a must-follow. Our guest today is Konstantin Eggert. He's a Russia expert who has worked as a journalist for numerous media outlets since starting his career as a reporter in Moscow in 1990. He is now at Deutsche Welle, which is, a, as Konstantin tells me, the German equivalent of the BBC. But from 1998 to 2009, Konstantin was senior correspondent, then editor-in-chief of the BBC Russian News Service, uh, the Moscow Bureau, I should say. Later, he worked for ExxonMobil Russia and the Russian media outlet Commerçant and TV Rain, the latter of which famously, as you might have heard, shut down after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in 2008, Queen Elizabeth II appointed Konstantin honorary member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. And Konstantin, it's very, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Nico, thank you. And uh, just one correction. Uh, I do tweet in English, but much less than in Russian. <laughs> Most of what I, I see that, is that in... That kind of, that kind of prods me to, uh, to do more in English. I was actually thinking about um, doing um, um, creating a separate account, which would have been called probably John Bolton's Mustache or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, but then um, I decided to stick to my timeline because there's well, kind of enough of uh, subscribers. But for anyone who wants to subscribe, it's K-V-O-N-E-G-G-E-R-T, Kvon Eggert uh, on Twitter. Yeah, and again, I recommend it. And there are many Americans like myself who are eager for commentary on what's happening in Russia and Ukraine from someone who knows the history, uh, as you do. So your Twitter account, again, is a must-follow, and I encourage people to check that out, even if they do have to read most of the tweets uh, via tra- translation service. So, Constantine, I want to start by kind of charting your personal history, because I think much of it can provide important context and a sort of narrative through line that brings us up to the war in Ukraine and, of course, the current state of censorship in Russia. Let's begin. Were you born in Russia? Yes, I'm a fourth generation Moscovite, and uh, um, that basically distinguished me um, from uh, the other lot in the army, for example, uh, because... uh, Attitude to Moscovites is exactly the same as kind of attitude to Parisians in, 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 in France. So I don't know what would be the equivalent in the U.S. Probably New Yorkers are considered to be quite arrogant. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's the reputation. I don't well, know. You that have a very a... distinct accent, which is also the same thing for Moscovites. So I was always recognized as um, um, very privileged by um, other people uh, whenever I had in had to go into some kind of environment like the army, for example, where I have people from all regions. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a descendant of a very old um, um, family, which uh, basically is quite interesting in terms of um, uh, its genesis. Um, I'm not a usual Russian in the sense I'm enculturated as a Russian, but uh, 
I am partly Polish, partly Swedish, partly German, partly Italian, and partly Russian. Uh, so uh, that is, um, well, quite unusual, although in a certain way it's usual because Russia was, and to some extent, is an empire. Uh-huh. And um, actually, well, I was born in Moscow because my great-grandfather retired as a major, uh, uh, medical service major from the Russian Imperial Army to Moscow in uh, 1870s or something like that. Uh, but yes, I'm a Moscovite and uh, actually was born just essentially 15 minutes walk from the Kremlin. So when you say Russia is essentially an empire, as you just said, does it still carry with it that sort of cultural heritage? Do Russians think of themselves as an imperial people? Yes, very much so. And I am also a child of an empire, in spite of the fact that I don't like it. And uh, um, in spite of the fact that the, especially the Soviet empire was, of course, one of the most horrible regimes in uh, the history of uh, humankind. Uh, but yes, we're all children of empire. And frankly, that's a good title for a book, uh, because we all know what it is. We all carry um, cultural prejudices, attitudes, um, analysis patterns, lifestyle patterns, um, that we inherit from uh, the imperial rule. And what I mean is uh, not only the Russian Empire, the Romanovs, but also the Soviet Empire. And now we realize that uh, what Vladimir Putin is now doing to Ukraine is probably the, I actually hope it's the last hurrah, if I may say so, in such tragic circumstances of, uh, of the Russian Empire, because Russians have never known a modern nation state, uh, which for example, most of Western Europeans know very well that that's where I live now. Uh, so, um, yes, in a sense, I am, I am a product of an empire. And does that kind of inform, in a certain sense, this attitude about an imperial Russia, inform what's happening in Ukraine? Is it important to understand what's currently happening in Ukraine and why there, at least from an uninformed Westerner like myself, seems to be internal support within Russia? for the invasion of Ukraine? Oh, yes, I think uh, it's important because debates about the place of Ukraine in Russian culture, in Russian politics, in Russian history, in Russian psyche, if you wish, um, has been going on actually under the Russian Empire. I mean, Ukraine, which was not exactly called that way, uh, joined what actually wasn't yet a Russian Empire, but a uh, uh, Moscow Zardom, Moscow Kingdom, in mid-17th century, in kind of very controversial circumstances, as, by the way, quite a lot of people will admit both in Ukraine and in Russia. And uh, basically, it was a land uh, that was, A, trying to find its own way in what was just at that time the beginning of European modernity, but it was also a land which was very much impacted both by the Byzantine Empire and by the Polish uh, Lithuanian Commonwealth, the, 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 the Polish state, which actually was controlling part of it at the time. So it was a land of competition and rebirth at the same time, or rather birth of a new nation. And that was, to extent, stamped out by, by, by the fact that um, uh, what, what is the most of modern Ukraine joined uh, Russia at the time, and then it was part of the Russian Empire, and of course uh, the, the, the Russian Empire was uh, uh, called Emperor of the Great Little um, and White Russia, 
which means the greatest Russia proper, small Russia, little Russia, that's Ukraine, Malorossia uh, in, in old Russian, and what is now Belarusia, white Russia, um, that was the third component. So in a sense, there was always this idea that, yes, these are three different parts of one unit, the Rus, Russia. And this creates basically debates until today. But frankly speaking, and you can say, well, Nikolai Gogol, one of the biggest and well, most well-known Russian writers, well, he was from Ukraine. He wrote a lot about Ukraine. He knew Ukrainian language, but he was also creating most of what he created, most of his literary output was created in Russia, in St. Petersburg, so basically, or in Moscow. So um, basically the issue is, is he a Ukrainian writer or a Russian writer? Russians will say he's Russian, modern Ukrainians will say, no, 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 of course he's Ukrainian. Uh, but, you know, these things can, of course, be debated and settled. Uh, but what we've seen now is something that goes beyond cultural debates, beyond culture wars, even, I would say. It goes all the way to basically mid-20th century, early, not 20th century, the World War period barbarism, which Putin is now inflicting on a state which, by the way, was recognized by Russia in its current borders in 1991, and finally in 1997, the, the treaty that established Russian-Ukrainian relations, finally including borders, was signed by Boris Yeltsin and the then president of Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, in 1997. It's been called so in Russian diplomatic vernacular. It was called the so-called Big Treaty, uh, which settled everything. And um, what you do now, essentially, you're breaking, smashing every single promise that post-Soviet Russia gave to Ukraine. And now Putin is in this mode of denying uh, even the existence of a separate Ukrainian nation, separate Ukrainian state. So. Uh, you asked me about the invasion. We'll probably debate it, and but it's very much linked to empire. It's very much linked to to, to Putin. Uh, first of all, it's not the war against Ukraine, or rather, not only the war against Ukraine, and it's not only as many people realized Putin's war on the West. Both both uh, contentions are right. But it's very important, I think, uh, there's a very important third element to that, which one only feels when one knows what goes on inside Russia and when one knows what many ordinary folks in Russia think. Uh, it is really Putin opening up the pent-up reservoir of post-imperial resentment, uh, what the French will call ressentiment, the, 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 the desire, you know, basically to uh, relive in a new way uh, this imperial adventure, uh, this desire for vengeance for the loss of this empire in 1991, and, and that's very important, the desire for vengeance, the desire of vengeance for the miserable lives that the majority of Russians lead under Putin's regime. So instead of, well, essentially doing a Boston Tea Party and you know, storming the nearest police station or going on a mass rally uh, to demand change, you just enlist, take up your Kalashnikov and go and shoot innocent people because you can't do anything about your life at home. And this is an important thing. This is an important social engineering project for Putin. 
creating a new Putin majority, a majority of vengeance, uh, resentment, and defensiveness. So I think that essentially, just one last thing to say, and that yeah. may, may be something I should have said, Nico, at the end, but I think the important and very, very sad fact is that, uh, and we're not discussing Ukraine now. I mean, I understand it's a huge tragedy. I commiserate and try to help the Ukrainian people. But if we are talking about Russia, Putin thinks he made it strong, but in fact, he's thrown Russia under the bus. And frankly, if in 50 years there is no such thing, if there is no such thing as Russia, or if there is no Russia as we know it today, I wouldn't be surprised. I won't see it, but I won't be surprised. Let me, let me ask you about the counter narrative that exists, especially among the so-called so political realists. There's a famous professor here at the University of Chicago. Yeah, the idea that NATO was sort of asking for this with its eastward expansion. What do you what do you make of that argument? You know, it's the argument that China sort of trots out now in defense of Russia's actions, although it claims to be politically neutral on the question. What, what do you what do you make of that? That you know there was sort of this agreement that NATO wouldn't march east to Russia's borders, and you know mm -hmm. and th this yeah. was the inevitable result of its its eastward yeah. advance. As, as you've seen, as you've seen my um, my uh, biography, you know that I worked as diplomatic correspondent for Izvestia Daily, which was at the time the number one daily in Russia uh, in the 1990s. So the whole NATO uh, debate. I remember covering from day one, essentially. And uh, John Mearsham is most cynics, is wrong big time. You know, cynics are usually right 99% of the time. <laughs> but when they are wrong, they're wrong big time. This 1% is usually kind of depth charges, everything else. Uh, so I think he's really wrong there. And, and frankly, I think that this is a way for him to, well, bend the debate, bend the narrative the way he wants it to be, because he definitely knows that uh, NATO is not kind of uh, running around and shopping for new neighbors. You have to apply to join NATO. And the fact that so many countries wanted to join NATO after the end of the Cold War, uh, I think is, well, quite significant. And, <laughs> well, they were not pulled in there. Uh, and um, you have to ask why. And I think a lot of it has to do with history, including the imperial history and uh, the history of, let's say, Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians, Poles, uh, that were either absorbed by the Soviet Union and half of the peoples were sent to the Gulag, or they were occupied and also brutalized and, you know, foreign, foreign regime was imposed on them. So the fact that they want to join NATO is, well, I think it's pretty natural in many ways. And as for promises, well, look, um, there are definitely uh, exchanges recorded, and that's that's well known between, yeah. let's say, German and Soviet officials. And say 1989 and early 90, 1990, I mean the year, not the decade, uh, when the Soviet Union still existed, in which there was this kind of not exactly a promise, but a discussion about, okay, probably we will not deploy new forces in what used to be is Germany, the, the German Democratic Republic, the socialist state controlled by the Soviet Union. Uh, maybe we should discuss it, you know, and, 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 well, maybe we should not do anything about it. And probably, yes, no membership of NATO for Germany. Probably. It was all, probably, let's talk about it. First and foremost of all, nothing like that was ever put on paper. Nothing like that was ever 
included into any treaties, including, by the way, the, the Paris Charter of 1990, which was signed by Gorbachev at this time when the Soviet Union still existed. And secondly, all this was debated in the context of the Soviet Union, which basically had a direct border with Poland, you know, and, and it was a completely different geopolitical reality. Uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia were part of the Soviet Union at the time. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, well, for example, no debate was there about uh, Latvia, Estonia, or the Baltic states mm-hmm. in 1989, because they did not exist as separate states. So now what should you say? You should retroactively say, oh, by the way, what relates to the GDR should also relate to the then non-existent Lithuania, or rather the, one has to be very clear, Lithuania in the thousand years old state, but it was occupied by the Soviet Union, so it regained its independence. So I think that this is a completely fake argument, unless you think that, as in George Orwell's Animal Farm, some animals are kind of, you know... <laughs> more, more equal than others. arrangements than the others. So I think that in this respect, John Mirshama is wrong, and it's not realism. It's cynicism masquerading as national interest. And as I said, I mean, especially in America, which is based on an idea, which is founded on a set of ideas, uh, that to me just is completely is besides the point. Yeah, so what led you to this? You're a native Russian, you're a Moscovite, you know. The, Putin, at least according to the polls, if you can believe them, has broad support within Russia. You know, what led you to this sort of contrarianism or this skepticism of current Russian politics and the larger political narrative? Oh, because I'm la creme de la creme of the intelligence, of course, you know. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, it's, of course, the family history. Uh-huh. Uh, my, um, uh, basically, my uh, grandfather was uh, arrested in front of my mother in February 1938 and carted off to the Gulag. Well, he was lucky to survive. Wow. Uh, because he was quite a famous actor and director, and uh, uh, you would be surprised. I mean, this, for the Americans, it will sound really weird, but uh, different parts of the Gulag, different camps, different parts of Russia, would have competition, theater competitions between them. So you'd have to have basically what amounted to slave actors in each, in each, in each camp. So my uh, grandfather was chosen by the camp commandant to collect a troop of uh, people to, you know, to perform gogol, for example, to compete with, an, with other camps in Siberia or in, in let's say, the Euros. And uh, that's how he survived. Uh, because he was not forced to, you know, chop wood or build uh, dams or whatever they did at the time. Um, and uh, that's not the whole story. My grandmother's um, brother was shot by Stalin. He was an officer. Uh, her other brother was executed by NKVD, Stalin's secret police, in 1941, when they were retreating from Ukraine. Uh, my grandfather's brother was, uh, who lived in he, he escaped from Russia after the revolution. He was living in, in Poland, essentially, or in the German borderlands. Uh, he disappeared. We think he was probably either killed during the fighting or uh, he was not a soldier himself, but he was probably a civilian was killed. Or he was probably arrested by the same NKVD when the Soviets came to Poland. So, look, uh, it's, it's a story which did not make me like the, the Soviet Union. Uh, by the beginning of uh, the uh, Soviet-German War in 41, 
there was not a single male in the family who could fight on at least one side of the family. My father was uh, was very sick, so he was not enlisted, luckily for him. Mm. Um, that's why you're I, here, probably. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that's why I'm here. Um, that's why I look like that. Uh, uh, and uh, also, but it's it goes deeper. Uh, my Polish ancestors uh, were actually fighting the partition of Poland by Russia, Prussia, and Austria in late uh, 18th century, and one of them was actually beheaded by by Catherine the Great, uh, not by her, but by her executioners, of course. Uh, my other relative served time in jail for pro-Polish, Polish independence propaganda under the Tsar. So, in a sense, although as I say, my my culture is Russian, but this kind of resistance to forced, um, to, to 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 forcible occupation. Let's put it like yeah. that. Uh, and to uh, this distaste or active repulsion of uh, of totalitarianism. That was something that the family carried. We were not dissidents. I don't want to present an image of this kind of very brave Eggerts fighting Brezhnev or Stalin or whatever. But uh, definitely this history was kept in the family. And when Gorbachev actually started his perestroika, uh, transformation of the then Soviet Union, it, I immediately felt, well, this is my time. Mm-hmm. And that's how actually I became a journalist. I'm not a journalist by education. I'm, I'm a historian of the Middle East and translator of the Arabic language. So uh, that is, I think, how I came to be so contrarian, uh, sort of uh, jokes uh, jokes about uh, elitism apart. <laughs> but you'd think there would be a lot of other Russians like you, you know, in the sense that Throughout the history of the Soviet Union, if the history is to be believed, something like between 10 to 50 million Russians were killed, um, either disappeared or sent to the gulag or died because of famine. You think there would be a little bit more distaste amongst Russians for empire, for authoritarianism, people who would have the same sort of perspective that you do. But I don't get that the sense that it is. But also, I don't know. You know, I I just... Well, 10, 15 million, that's probably quite a conservative estimate of, if you look back at the uh, Russian Civil War. I mean, you like, hear you hear all the way up to 50 million, if you include yeah, famines. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Some of the, if you if you pull, put in together the, also the, the, the war uh, uh, casualties, which some say also hide, because the Soviet calculation that 27 million died in the war. So it's civilians, it's soldiers. But some people say it's also people who died in the Gulag at the time that were kind of buried in these figures. So, uh, well, it's tens of millions, definitely. Uh, well, you know... And it's a country of only 130 million or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's 140, yes. The Soviet Union was uh, 290-something, close to 300 million before it collapsed. Um, and actually, it's interesting, but before I ask you a question, before uh, it's, it's interesting that, for example, people talk about, you know, Russia as inheritor of certain uh, legacy of the Soviet Union, nuclear nuclear weapons, for example, or a seat on, on the Security Council, uh, permanency yeah. Security Council, the veto right. But frankly, if you look, for example, at the devastation of the Second World War, well, quite a lot of it uh, is in Ukraine, not only in Russia. Actually, territorially, I think Ukraine is the biggest chunk of the former Soviet Union that suffered from uh, from the German invasion and from uh, from the Holocaust, 
there were not as many Jews, for example, in what used to be the Russian Republic inside the Soviet Union, than then in uh, what is now Belarus or Belarus and Ukraine. So uh, what I want to say, though, is that uh, it's a very peculiar uh, social phenomenon. First of all, people like I, I would say at, at the very best, constitute no more than 10-12% of the population. And now they're, a lot of them are leaving Secondly, it is um, a wounded national psyche uh, which sees things in a very strange, I would say distorted way, in which people say, well, you know, at least under Stalin there was order. So essentially, I think what the Soviet experiment achieved, it achieved um, creating, to some extent, a new man with a capital M, uh, someone who is, on the one hand, completely suppressed and subjugated by the state. And he's re he internally he resents this, because no human being likes being oppressed. But on the other hand, this new human being um, appreciates <clears throat> order, and predictability that the totalitarian, totalitarian system brings. And it is, in a certain way, a predictability of a slave life, but it is predictability. And also, and that's an important thing, you do not have to think. And the state decides everything for you. And in exchange for that, to compensate for your miserable status, you have an ability, or at least an image, of oppressing others. And Ukrainians come, uh, occupy a very special place in this psyche because they are Slavs, they are related to the Russians. Uh, there is a lot of commonality in history and language and attitude, although there are very many differences too. So, you always say, well, Ukrainians are my brothers. But they're only brothers as long as they're junior brothers. Yeah. And as long as they take orders from you. The, the moment they say, by the way, I'm, a, I'm your brother, I want to take an I want to move to a separate, to a separate flat, to a separate apartment, and do my own shtick. Well, then suddenly you become not a brother, but an enemy. And this is, I think, what we see Putin essentially telling the Russians. And uh, this is, uh, alas, I'm, I'm in a minority, and uh, uh, these days I live in Lithuania, uh, northern Russia. In 1987, you were called up for national army service in Russia, and they still have a conscription regime in Russia. If I uh, no, it's, it's a mix. It's a there mix. is conscription, but actually the majority of the armed forces are, like in the U.S., volunteer soldiers. Okay, so when you yeah. say you were called up, were you a conscript? Or I was called up. The Soviet Union was all a call up. There was no professional okay. army. Oh, there was a professional officer corps. Uh huh. You had to serve 20, 25 years as an officer. But um, soldiers were called up. So it was millions of people called up every year. I was called up as an officer after the university because uh, in the Soviet Union, still in Russia, there was the system which some colleges offer you basic military training. And if you manage to get into such a college, you avoid, or in the Soviet Union, you did avoid uh, being conscripted. 
but you could be called up after you finish your studies. And that's what happened to me. So I was, well, I was very lucky. I served abroad. I was basically a translator for the Soviet military mission in one of the, in, in, in Yemen, actually, in, in an Arab country. So I did not suffer this kind of humiliation, uh, bullying and hazing that a lot of uh, conscript soldiers suffered during the Soviets and still suffer today. Yeah. And I ask you this because you might, you know, we're talking 30 years ago or 35 years ago at this point. So, but a lot of the practices from the Soviet Union, if you read news reports, uh, remain within the current Russian military. So I was wondering if there's anything from your experience that might tell us a little bit about what the current Russian soldier is experiencing. You read reports about how some of these soldiers, they were you know, doing the military exercises in Belarus, and then all of a sudden they're at war in Ukraine. They have no idea what's going on. You know, uh, They're not being properly supplied. Some of them are running away, and some of them are killing their officers. Um, is, there, is there anything from your experience that might be able to shed some light on what the current Russian soldier is experiencing and thinking? Well, first and foremost of all, as an officer and translator, I was not, I don't know, I wasn't a soldier, as I said, so I can't tell you um, about my own experience, but quite a few of my uh, friends and uh, connections and, you know, acquaintances, uh, they served in the army. And essentially what happened, and this is what actually my officer colleagues described to me when we served together. And when I asked those who were senior to me in rank and age, uh, what they said is that um, in the late 60s, the uh, Soviet army started experiencing a shortage of conscripts. For one simple reason, because of the war and the gulag. I mean, basically the Soviet population contracted. And so at a certain point in time, um, the, 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 the number of people could call became limited. So one had to expand conditions. For example, before you had a prison sentence uh, on your area, you couldn't serve in the army. And you can be a conscripted soldier until 27, actually. So what they started doing when they saw that, whoa, Christ, we don't have enough soldiers, they started basically conscripting everyone. You had a criminal record, or you were sick. It was, you didn't speak Russian well because there were areas of the Soviet Union where people, well, didn't speak Russian very well, like the Caucasus. You still go in. Secondly, in the 60s, last officers who saw Second World War and knew what the army was really for were pensioned off. So what happened is that you had an officer corps which was completely sort of, which never fought, fought anything. Uh, combined with a ragtag bunch, well, a bunch it was huge, millions, of conscripts coming together. That meant that a completely completely different hierarchy started to appear in the army. And you'd have, you'd, you'd serve usually um, two years, so these two years were divided into four periods of six years. Six months, I'm sorry. So, first six months you were a junior that had to take orders from pretty much anyone and do whatever. And you can be punished, raped, beaten up. They could tell you, you know, to clean up the toilet with your toothbrush. You could be denied food by, your, by, by the seniors. Then it becomes a bit milder when you're in a second 
six months because there's a bunch of young people coming to serve and you can start giving them orders. And then it progresses all the way until it's your last six months where you're kind of the king, where you can order the juniors to do even some of your army chores if they are primitive. And the officers, these young officers, all these new officers, what they were doing was relying on the system, saying, well, I don't, have to keep the, I don't have to keep the order in the barracks. I'll just ask the senior soldiers to tell everyone else what to do. And it's not like this, because the Russian army, as opposed to the American army, doesn't have sergeants that actually replace officers. In the, the officer is the brain. He sits and thinks about you know, your training, about combat, things like that. But whether you clean your rifle is not for the officer to, I mean, he doesn't have to think about it. In the Soviet army, it's different. It's the officer who has to check everything because it's a very strict hierarchical system in which independence of thinking is not encouraged. And this created a situation in which a lot of Russian units became basically mini models of prison in which, as you know from any kind of, okay, any American film that depicts prison, you know what the attitudes are there, what the mores are there. So the, the Russian army became a small totalitarian prison, every single unit. And this carried over into the traditions of the uh, Russian army. I think that about 15 years ago, Putin realized that it undermines the army morale. And he started to professionalize it. But totalitarian streak there, it dies very hard, believe me. So it's still there. And also, it's an, an important thing here, is that in the Soviet Union at least, for example, imagine, I, I do not enter the Moscow University. I'm called out. I'm a child born in central Moscow, speaking foreign languages, blah, 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 blah. I'll be there with probably the son of engineer from St. Petersburg, a villager from what is nowadays Chechnya, a kolkhoz farm worker from Ukraine. So in a sense, it was for everyone. Of course, they hated the intelligentsia. Of course, they hated the city kids. That's, that's normal. They would probably have beaten me up. But um, but um, it was more or less a lottery, so people were trying to bribe, bribe away the military commissars that organized the call, people buying fake medical uh, certificates that they are blind or something like that, so their children would not go uh, to the army, because they knew what awaits them there. But uh, today, when part of the army is professional, and part of the army is uh, conscript, First of all, you still have the old habits. You still have this totalitarian, uh, um, oppressive structure in which everyone has to know his place and the juniors are always there to serve at the pleasure of the seniors. And uh, also what's important is that under Putin, uh, the way to rule the country is very simple. It's fear and corruption. If you're loyal, you're allowed to be corrupt. If you become disloyal, well, there is a file on you. And this corruption permeates the whole system going through the army. Why the Russian army was unsuccessful in Ukraine? 
Not only because Putin was deluded about Ukraine and its own, his own military, but because half of what was supposed to be their material, their hardware, their supplies was stolen. And this is something that is important in these circumstances, because this is an army which is also corrupted from within. The general steals, the, the colonel looks at the general and says, okay, well, I'll steal what I have. The general steals millions, I will steal hundreds of thousands. And the major will steal tens of thousands of rubles or dollars or whatever. But it is a completely, uh, it's a system within a system. The army is part of the society and part of the gov government's system, governance system in Russia. So um, that is what you have. You started as a reporter in Moscow in 1990 uh, after you were discharged. You were discharged a first lieutenant. Uh, and then you carried on as a reporter throughout the 90s, again, going to work for the BBC's bureau in Moscow. What was it like being a reporter before the fall of the Soviet Union and after? What was your experience like? Because you're going from state-run media to independent media in a certain sense. Talk a little bit about that, the censorship that might have existed within the industry at the time, and then... Well, um, look, uh, Nico, the Soviet system of propaganda, it wasn't journalism, really, or very little of it. I didn't really work for uh, But I'll give you an example how uh, the new media started in Russia. Because the old one was very simple. I'll tell you how it worked. There was a state censorship uh, body, which was called Glavlit, Главное литературное управление, Chief Literary Department. Quite ironic, right? Uh, and uh, this was essentially where people with... Uh, pencils, red pencils set, and they received every book that was published, and they would say, oh, this is good, this is not good, this is, there's too much sex here, or there's too little sex, or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, you'd have the same censors in state television, radio, and newspapers. Moreover, if you're appointed editor-in-chief of a paper, even the provincial paper, you'd have to be a, 99% of the cases, you'd have to be a party member. So you would know what to do. And uh, you'd basically introduce party censorship. You would know what the party line is, and anything that contradicts us has to be excised. Okay, in late Soviet days, it was already slightly different, but we're not going into details. Generally, it was censorship. When I uh, discharged from the army um, and uh, started looking for work, uh, because my, my old work was probably not really the great interest to me, and what would I do as a translator time and everything was bubbling around. I mean, Moscow in 1990 was one of the political centers of the world and one of the revolutionary centers of the world. And um, what I essentially did, I also thought, okay, I always wanted to do some communication work and you know, writing or something like that. And um, I bought a newspaper, which was a new newspaper. It started publishing three weeks before I discharged or something like that. And it doesn't exist anymore. And I looked it up, and uh, well, it was interesting. Well, actually, it was the first Russian tabloid. But it was very political and very anti-communist. So one day I was walking past uh, a building in central Moscow, and suddenly I saw the logo, the, the logo of this newspaper on the door. And I thought, wow, uh, that's the same newspaper I, I, I actually read a couple of days ago. So, hmm, 
Why, why don't I come and ask them? Do they want someone? So I come in, the police lets me through. Nothing like that today. You may have to go through a security check. I come in and see this kind of typical, um, typical editorial office of 20th century. I mean, straight out of Citizen Kane. <laughs> and uh, people are running around, you know, it was still pre-computer days, people typing on typewriters and it goes around. Oh, what? Um, how do I find a job here? I say, well, you have to go to the editor-in-chief. What's his name? Oh, I don't remember. I'm here since yesterday. But he's on the third floor. I go to the third floor, knock on the door, come in. There's this man sitting. He's alive. Thank you very much. I'm very glad he's still, he's 90, but he's still alive. So I come in and uh, he asks me, well, what can I do for you? I say, well, I'm so-and-so. I'd like to work as a journalist. Okay, what, what, what's the skills that you possess? Um, I say, well, I speak three foreign languages. English, French, and Arabic. Okay, what else? I say, well, I'm a historian of the Middle East, but that probably counts for nothing in this job. And he jumps on his chair and says, that's exactly what you need. <laughs> I say, why it is exactly what you need? He says, well, because we don't anyone who has any experience of Soviet journalism. And then it really turned out that among people that worked with me were photographers, biologists, you know, it was a time when people that did propaganda were strictly kind of, well, I wouldn't say they were banned, but any new media organization wanted fresh people. And this is how it looked at the time. Yes, it wasn't America. Russia didn't and still doesn't and will not on the Putin have a First Amendment. But definitely it was a vibrant, competitive media scene, which at that time, it was mostly radio and television, uh, radio and uh, newspapers. And then first private TV channel was established in 1994. It was called MTV. It was a groundbreaking coverage of, uh, let us say, the war, the first war in Chechnya in mid-90s, in which people would go live on air and say, Yeltsin is a criminal to wage this war. He needs to resign. You can't imagine that today. No, you can't, no. This thing happened not only on this private channel. In mid-90s, it happened on state TV, which still exists. You'd have members of the Duma standing up and saying, Yeltsin should go and you know, he put, put his children in the line of fire in Chechnya, which should stop this bloody war. So I think that it is completely different. I'm not saying it was ideal. There was a lot of corruption in journalism. A lot of, you know, bought newspaper space. Um, the oligarchs moved in because they made media their tools for political and economic influence. But, you know, frankly, okay, by the time I joined the BBC, and that was already a little bit before Putin became president, there were three or five oligarchs that controlled probably even less, probably three, that controlled all major media assets. Plus, there was a state. So you had at least four points of view in your newscasts. Well, they were some of them were manipulated, but it's better than one. And today the difference in uh, well, what you get on state television, that's where most of the Russians still get their news and uh, last view. Well, the only difference is kind of the way you decorate the studio and, um, I don't know, the, the, the way the weather forecasters look. Everything else is uniform. So that, that, it's a huge difference. And what was the trajectory like? Because you go from 
state television criticizing the Yeltsin regime in Chechnya, right, to today, it seems like it was gradual and it picked up steam with Putin and the controversy over the sinking of the submarine, I think. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard a little bit about that being a turning point. And then it just gets supercharged in the last three months, right? You mentioned the First Amendment. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's much appetite for that sort of... Free, so like, well, you, you, I, I kind of wonder, and I want to get your impression of this because we in America, we're pretty quirky with how free our speech is, right? You know, you talk about the first amendment in some places in Europe and they think it's crazy town, right? Yeah. Alas, yes, that's true. <laughs> um, less so, less so in Eastern Europe, less so in post-communist really? Eastern Europe, because in Poland, Lithuania, Romania, people understand the, uh, the treasure that is free speech. And I'm afraid that in society... But I, I want to understand why Russians don't understand that, right? Because you had... I mean, oh, you, you no. didn't have the First Amendment, but you had criticism of the government. With Chech- yeah, it's yeah. like... And maybe you do have that. Maybe you do have it. It's just a repressed desire because of the consequences. Um, I don't know, but... Nico, but where is the glory? <laughs> I live in a village 150 kilometers of the city of Orenburg, of which 99.9% of your audience never heard of. I live in a village where where there is, well, very basic amenities, uh, only state TV, um, very basic school, no perspective, a ruined, okay, probably not a ruined farm, but, but a very small farm. You earn, you know, 200 bucks a month at best. Oh, that's a big money, by the way. No, 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 100 bucks per month. Yeah. So, why do you need free speech in such circumstances? Yeah. And there's a lot of that in Russia. And also, I think if you ask him, you ask me how we came there. And you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, quite a few years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago, I spoke at length uh, to, the, to, the, to the widow of the Shah of, of, of Iran, uh, the, the Shah Banu, the, the Empress of Iran, Farah. She lives in Paris. And I asked her, well, Your Majesty, um, it all happened very suddenly to some extent. But on the other hand, you can't have a movement of like three million people, demonstrate of three million people in, in, in the middle of Tehran out of nowhere. So where did you commit a mistake? And she, and by the way, quite a few other Iranians that now emigrate, told me, it's always step by step. You never see where you go, where you, when you are consumed by kind of day-to-day things. So every time you take a decision, you seem it seems like okay, I always have a choice. But then it turns out that certain decisions are just forks. And if you take points of bifurcation, right? So you take one road and it eliminates several other roads. And I think that this is what happened. Some people say that uh, I think the common view with regard to Russia that this descent into Putinism started in 1996 when a very sick and unpopular President Yeltsin was re-elected to the presidency for a second time. And for that, most of the media mobilized and were actually serving uh, Yeltsin's campaign as soldiers uh, and denigrating his opponents, who were actually quite funny and, and worth denigrating. But still, not giving objective coverage, taking money from the Kremlin to do, for example, amazing concerts with all the pop stars supporting Yeltsin, 
uh, and things like that. I remember that, and my newspaper at the time was doing exactly the same, supporting Yeltsin. And we were thinking, yes, we do support Yeltsin, but at the same time, we're criticizing. We're criticizing for Chechnya, criticizing for, cor for corruption of his entourage. Uh, we, we, we were not just dishonest. And also, it's important, the opponents of Yeltsin at the time, especially the chief communist who was still alive, Gennady Zuganov, who's completely in the pocket of the Kremlin, basically, kind of fake communist. Uh, I like fake communists, by the way. You'd better have fake communists than the real ones. But, <laughs> uh, um, but at the time, they were not fake. At the time, we had demonstration every day in front of my newspaper offices, again, 20 minutes walk from the Kremlin, with uh, some kind of Cossacks or people with red banners or whatever, standing there with slogans saying, Jews from Izvestia, your time will come in two weeks. Well, and in these circumstances, I'm not Jewish, but a lot of Jewish colleagues in Izvestia. Well, then you can't say, well, you know, but they have to be very principled. You have to remember all these principles of objective journalism. But these people will actually promise to, well, at least kick me out of my job, that's at best. And I think that we have this feeling, yeah, we're in this together with Yeltsin, because that's his fight, but this is our fight too. And I think that this is a tragedy. We were acting in good faith. I never took any money to support, say, Yeltsin's foreign policy, the foreign policy journalist. Yeah. But that started then, because Yeltsin suddenly and his team realized, okay, you control the media, you control the state, and then you control elections. And then, of course, Putin, when he came, he learned this lesson. And he went further than Yeltsin because under Yeltsin, the oligarchs, people appointed as billionaires by the start of the century, um, most of them, uh, were basically running the media, the biggest media. And Putin decided, well, I want to be an oligarch myself. So I'll eliminate them as an influence, and they'll put everything under my control. The price is, well, the only oligarch who stood up to put in Mikhail Khodorkovsky paid with 10 years of jail. I, ju I just watched the documentary about him, Citizen K. It was pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just talked to him just a few days ago in London, interviewed him. You can see the interview actually also on DW Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, he, he, he really he fashions himself like a small L liberal who really wants to reform Russia. Do you believe yes, that? Yes, he's, a very, he's a very honest man and uh, someone who at actually my age, I'm 58, uh, as he is, he still is learning, and he is transforming his political, but he's basically learning from life. He's not there just to dispense wisdom. But anyway, what I want to say is that, in his words to me, the idea was very simple. If you want to be, remain billionaires, it's 50% to the Kremlin. And so, so it all went down downhill. Uh, independent journalists were kicked out, owners were changed, and everyone, and this is important, you never, you, you don't need anymore, in, in Russian media today, you don't need these men, I talked to you about Nikov, uh, people in gray suits with red pencils, saying, oh, you know, you write Putin with a capital P or whatever, five letters, capital letters or something, or you don't mention Khodorkovsky, you don't need them anymore. Self-censorship is the most effective way to uh, 
to impose a uniform view on the society. In this respect, well, you know a bit of it in America, in academic circles, you know, the, you're talking about culture wars and things like that, right? Yeah. But at least uh, you can say, okay, I'm going to move from this university to another university. Or I don't like this attitude in this, I don't know, paper, I'll move to whatever, some, something else. I don't like the Jacobin, I'll, I'll go to the New Republic. I don't like National Review, I'll go to whatever. Uh, the fabulous. And I think that in Russia, there's essentially the whole idea of Putin was gradually shrinking this space. So you have nowhere to go. Or even if you are independent, like now defunct Echo Moskvi, the famous radio station, for which I also worked as a freelance, or the TV Dost, for which I worked, TV Rang, the only independent TV channel, which is now out of business. Yeah. You still had to, you know, you still had to talk to Putin's spokesman and take the lies that he's delivering, at, or at least look as if you're taking his lies at face value, because it's objective. But I think at a certain point in time, the situation turned out to be tragic. Well, because let, me, let me ask you this, Constantine. It's completely, it's completely compressed now. Well, what could have gone differently in the 90s to avoid this outcome? Like, is there anything the West could have done to help get this new small L liberal state to adopt more liberal values? Or is this this the inevitable outcome because of Russia's history, because of its... Is there an alternative tr history that could have existed? Yes, had, but had... I think I think it's, it's an alternative that, uh, in theory, could have been implemented. It could have been there in practice probably not but there was no clean break well does that does that tell you anything about the future of russia then like is there anything in the uh, i mean is the future yeah, of russia just, hold that possibility yeah j j just to finish on, on your question i'll, I'll answer I'll, I'll, I'll answer about the future i think that uh there is uh we're going back to what the the shah's widow the the empress of iran the former yeah. empress of iran told me did it happen in 96 when they re-elected re Yeltsin with this kind of massive help from the independent media? Yeah, maybe it started then. Was there an alternative? Maybe if Yeltsin chose a different, uh, maybe I would say if Yeltsin chose a different successor, probably it would have been different. If it wasn't a KGB officer uh, with a very dark uh, childhood and youth. Maybe. I still don't understand why Putin was chosen. He, nobody knew him. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, he progressed through the ranks and proved his loyalty. Because he was head of FSB, Russian Secret Service, before he became prime minister and eventually president. So he proved his loyalty to uh, Yeltsin circle. For example, digging up dirt on the prosecutor general. And by the way, a real dirt, not imaginary dirt on the prosecutor general who wanted to pursue Yeltsin's family corruption. Well, the gentleman was really guilty of spending time with prostitutes, which is not very good probably for the, uh, for the prosecutor general. But uh, I think that Putin actively proved that he is there for the Yeltsin's family. And then it was the issue of Chechnya and this wound of actually the first Chechen war uh, in the First Chechen War, Russia suffered, in fact, a defeat and had to give 
Chechnyan unprecedented autonomy, which the Chechens didn't use well, but still they, they, they had it. And I think that this idea of revanche was also very clear. And then they did polling, they did focus groups. And they found out that um, it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the uh, political gurus, you know, the, the the kind of spin doctors that were helping Yeltsin at the time, he told me that we did focus grouping, and what we discovered is that uh, the society, when asked what kind of leader do you want, they the society wanted someone modeled. On, a main, on the main protagonist of a very famous 1970s miniseries, which was called 17 Moments of Spring, which was about a Soviet NKVD foreign department of NKVD agent working in Hitler's Berlin in the last weeks and months of the war, masquerading as an SS professional, kind of SS colonel. Um, very charismatic wearing this amazing SS uniform, evidently an intellectual, quoting poetry and so forth, forceful, sexy, because the, the artist, that, the actor that played him was very sort of like a sex symbol. And it turned out that people wanted this type of person. But you have to remember, this was an NKVD KGB officer. And so they said, well, well, also you need someone healthier than Yeltsin, someone forceful, young. Here we have someone. He's also loyal. Why not? I think that was the choice. And then it turned out that uh, Putin did away with Yeltsin's legacy and started doing actually doing it straight away. In 2000, they captured the unknown people, quote-unquote, captured Radio Liberty, which is an American-financed uh, organization, Radio Liberty Report in Chechnya, and started playing games with him. So we don't know where he is. They didn't like him because his coverage was very sharp. Suddenly, well, in the end, they released him, but it was a signal, and that was early 2000, to every, before Putin was elected. This is what awaits you, dear members of the press. And it went on and on and on since then. So you have traditional censorship in Russia. You have the poisoning of dissidents. Uh, you have now the shutting down of social media. Uh, you have disinformation on a you know different scale than you really see almost anywhere else. What do we, I've got two final questions because I know we're at an hour and I want to be um, respectful of your time. What do Russians know that they don't know? Like do or, or do they not? Do they think they know everything or? Or is there a, there a sphere of information where they're, they're just so jaded that they they can't they, they know they can't understand the truth, so they don't even care to try, right? Nico, you can have me anytime on your podcast because that's a million dollar question, and very few people ask it. Believe me, people start talking about whether there is access to social media, whether there is censorship, whether there's essentially. The question is always about access to information. And by the way, this answers, to some extent, will answer the question I left slightly unanswered about the First Amendment. Well, this question it's somewhat like, comes from Peter it's, 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 it's pretty much the same question. And I'll give you my answer, which is a very sad answer to me. First and foremost of all, it's not so much an issue of access to information. The primary question, the, in the chicken or egg question, 
this is kind of, there is a solution here. It's not a chicken or egg question, rather. Before you have access, you have to have a wish, a desire to access. You have to want to know. And I think that what you asked is spot on 150%. By the way, that's how they vote for Putin, 150%. <laughs> um, I think a significant majority of Russians, or at least the majority of those who say, or the pollsters say, support Putin. They do not support him in a proper sense. Like, I know, you're probably a New Yorker, you, you probably vote, vote for Democrats. So, okay, you support the Democrats. You go and vote conscientiously because this is the Democratic Party, which stands, Democratic Party, which stands, this is this. Mm-hmm. And also, also I, I'm not overtly partisan in any of those sense. If I had to say I'm anything, I'm probably more libertarian than anything All else. All right, but. well, <laughs> yeah, I, I suspected so because of the nature of the podcast and yep. the name but um, it's not like that. Some of them do. But I suspect among the support base, it's probably the minority. And the majority of people, they do not support Putin or the Kremlin or the current regime, whatever you call it. The majority choose. They do not believe this regime. They choose to believe it. You see, it's a very significant, slight but significant difference. A large part of the Russian society wants to remain in the comfort zone in which, and it could be a very poor comfort zone, in which someone takes decisions for them. Someone implants opinions in their head because taking responsibility for one's own life is a very, very difficult thing for Russians, and not only because of the 20th century, but because of the whole history of Russia, I have to remind you that um, an, a serfdom, which was an equivalent of slavery in Russia, ended in 1861. And these were not imported slaves, you know, from Africa. These were people, the same Russians, that could have been bought, sold, or killed by an estate owner, by an aristocrat. This leaves a mark on the psyche, this obedience. Let me be safe, first and foremost of all, at any cost. And I think that this is what impacts Russians' decisions today. And And you think that's a uniquely Russian character? No, This idea that, you know, it it is, as ironic as it sounds, it is a sort of freedom to not have the freedom to make decisions. Yes, 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 that's true. But when it's a majority of people in a nuclear state, P5, permanent uh, uh, security council member, that is headed by, well, essentially a dictator and someone with a mission. Well, you have a problem. If the majority of public opinion is such, because uh, you can convince someone who is convinced of one thing someone believes A, so you can try and convince someone to believe B. You may be unsuccessful. But if someone chooses not to have an opinion, but at the same time follow the leader, that is different. It's not like not having an opinion. 
it's like parroting the talking points. And this has, uh, you can see people do it insincerely. Yes, a lot of them probably do. But that has an impact. It has an impact on children in, in schools, which are being told now that Russian troops are liberating uh, Mariupol or whatever, Kiev. It has an impact on teachers that have to tell them that. It has an impact on these conscripts you mentioned that was sent into Ukraine. And under completely false pretexts, and it's like, oh, wow. And of course, I think it's what happens is a, I, I can call it, it's a Russian tragedy. Because that is not, it's not the gulag. You know, they don't, they're killing physically people in Ukraine. They're not yet killing massively people in Russia. But what they do, they're killing the spirit and they're killing the independent thinking. And this means that when finally Putin's age is over, Imagine tomorrow you'll have Mr. Khodorkovsky or the jailed opposition leader, Mr. Navalny, Alexei Navalny. Why did he go back to Russia? I don't understand. I think he wanted to face off Putin. I think he understood that... Do you think that was a smart decision? That's one question not asking, because he's in jail, I'm not. Yeah. But uh, let me put it like that. Imagine tomorrow he's released for some reason. Putin goes, becomes a monk. And Navalny arrives in the Kremlin and even brings his team in. But he's going to have the same people to deal with. And that means that, okay, you reach you on your television and talk about freedoms and First Amendment and economics and peace and stuff like that. But then if someone kicks you out, he can retune the public opinion again. It will take generations for Russia to get out of that. Maybe two generations. I'm, I'm sure I will not see the end result. Well, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to think about other opposition leaders who have either gone into ex- exile or been jailed. And when the, the regime that exiled or jailed them falls, how successful were they in sort of starting a small L liberal movement? You, know, you can think of Nelson Mandela in South Africa. You can think of even, you know, in, not politically aligned at all, but you can even think of Lenin, right, and his return to Russia, you know, so there is some precedent for that sort of success and the courage that it takes to go back and say, you know, I'm so Russian and I so believe in this country that I'm going to go to jail and in the hopes that one day, you know, there will be a free Russia. I don't know. Have you read Peter Pomerantsev's uh, Everything is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible? Yes, I I read it and I know Peter quite well. Yeah. Um, that you kind of make me think what you were just saying kind of makes me think of that and he talks yes, a lot about how... I'm not saying anything new, of course. I think that um, Nelson, the, the Nelson Mandela's and the Václav Havel's and the uh, basically Lech Valencia's of this world, um, they they are not they're not grown on a farm. Mm-mm. They emerge in societies which have certain demands that have to be to use this fancy word, verbalized, to be put in words. And I think that you're right in a sense that these kind of transformations are usually uh, a case for minorities. But, I mean, it's... Russia will be a separate case because South Africa, that was a case of actually a white minority oppressing uh, black Black majority. Black majority, yeah. In oh, people are asking why Russia is not Poland. 
or Lithuania, or any other kind of post-communist state, although nowadays we don't use this term. Well, for obvious reasons. Because Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Romania uh, were essentially subjugated by a foreign power. To a different extent, but they were. One were somewhat outright kind of occupied and uh, denied independence. Some were basically put under control with formal independence. But fighting a foreign invader, a foreign power, usually is psychologically simpler because that unites, you know, the left and the right, the monarchists and the libertarians, the old and the young, because we're all Poles, we're all Lithuanians, we're all whatever. But in Russia, you don't have any racial issue on scale of South African uh, problem uh, under apartheid. Russia is not occupied by any foreign power. Russia just needs its people to start appreciating freedom. And this will take time. And frankly, I think I will use the words of, uh, of um, a very famous in British professor, Geoffrey Hosking, uh, who's quite old but still alive, luckily. Um, his book in 2007, that's very early Putin, uh, I recommend that you read it. It's called Rulers and Victims, Russians in the Soviet Union. I'll put it in the show notes. Yes, please do. And there he said that, and that's we're talking 2007, so he wrote it in 2006. Russia is undergoing three transformations rolled in one, like the old Vidal Sassoon shampoo, you know, all in one. Uh, and that's one transformation is economic, from the so-called command economy uh, to the market economy. Another one is from a totalitarian authoritarian state to a democracy. And a third transition is from an empire to a nation state. And he said that, well, to some extent, there's uh, maybe some success in transition number one. Well, people do appreciate private property. They do appreciate an ability to buy things or even to start a business, some of them. But the two others are still a very, very long way off before they succeed. And I think that essentially what we see today, we see a revanche, a revanche of this empire. In a sense, I feel like, Nika, if they had drones and webcams and social media in 476 in Rome, 1453 in Constantinople, 1918 in Petrograd, probably would have seen how it happened. But we don't. We only can you know, have written, uh, not very reliable testimonies. You know what had a big impact on me was, have you ever seen the movie um, Dr. Zivago? Uh, again? Dr. Zivago. Uh, no. uh, Dr. Zivago, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. By David. Yeah, yeah David, David Lane made the film. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie had a profound impact on me because they have that scene. I forget what city. I think it's Moscow, where the Moscow. family comes home. Yeah. After being away, and their home is taken over by peasants and citizens, and it's like we're in a new regime, and you have no legal system for which you can have yeah. yes. appeal for recourse to the people taking your private property. And I was like, wow, you know, I know we didn't have social media, or we didn't have drones, or yeah, we didn't yeah, have yeah. cameras, yeah. but I was like, that if that's what it was like, wow. 
Well, Dr. Zhivago is one of the greatest Russian novels, and one has actually to read it when one's, I think, probably over 30. Uh, it's now part of the school curriculum in, in, in Russia. I don't think at 17 you'll understand what it's all about. But uh, I think that you're right. And maybe that's what happened to my family when uh, a room, or two rooms, in a flat where they lived were taken over by a policeman when my grandfather was arrested. And I think that uh, it's not completely... I can't even believe that. that. I can't. You know, yeah. I, 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 but it happens like it had, seemed like it happened like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's like that. You, 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 you say someone comes and says, "Well, no, tomorrow you'll have these people moving in." Just it's the old Lenin best, statement: decades happen out, in days. Out, at, <laughs> at best, take a wardrobe. At best, or maybe they'll use it. You know, and I think that then, they, then actually, I think they reported my grandfather to the police because they wanted an extra room. But I think that. <laughs> It's it's yeah it's normal. Someone wanted once someone's wife, so he would have the report yeah. husband. So I think yeah, it's a long, it's a very long way to freedom. You remember Nelson Mandela? You 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 mentioned his memoirs are called "The Long Walk to Freedom." Yep. It's not for one man. It's for the whole country. And question is whether Russia will have the time to walk it. But I think that if when Putin goes eventually. I think what the best result for the world would be Russia that will have a modicum of a rule of law, because this just doesn't. It was completely erased. Isn't that the key, though? Isn't that the key? The it's rule one, of it's law. It's one of the key elements because, for example, you can you may not have a perfect an independent democracy. judiciary. I think is yes, the key. Yes, but at least if you're a small business owner or or a victim of violence, you have to have a recourse to a just court. Uh-huh. On a very basic level. Yeah. That's important. Secondly, Russia should be at peace with its neighbors and at peace with itself. If it's at peace with itself, with a kind of, I mean, I'm quote unquote, you know, a a general Pershing who will be sitting there for a presidential term of 10 years. Okay, as long as it's not waging aggressive wars. As long as as property rights and a few other rights are protected by courts, as long as there is at least self-government, then maybe you will move somewhere. I think that eventually it will maybe even be better, maybe. But my question is now, Putin uncorked like a bottle of, uh, you know, sour beer. He uncorked something very primitive in Russian psyche. And these atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine, they will boomerang back into Russia. And if Putin thinks that he can control these consequences, well, dream on. We had this violence after Afghanistan. We had a, well, we call the Chechen syndrome, the Chechen war veterans returning and doing horrible things. But that was at a time when there were wolves to let this out, the so-called free media, the, you know, semi-democracy. In an authoritarian state, you have this violence kind of channeled back into Russia. Oh, well, eventually it's like a pressure cooker, blow up. Yeah. Well, we were talking about an independent judiciary. You you need a real one because you can have laws that sort of claim, for example, Mm -hmm. the Russia, the uh, the Constitution of the Russian Federation from 1993, and it says, and I quote, everyone shall be guaranteed freedom of thought and speech. Right? Yeah, it means yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. It's just words yeah, on a page yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless, it's, unless it's enforced. Last question for you. Yeah. 
because again, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation, so I've kept you longer than I promised I would keep you. Um, what should we expect from the Russia-China relationship moving forward? You know, they, oh. you know, they were neighbors, a bit antagonists, and then now they've, their, their relationship knows no limits or whatever that statement said. In China, you have the great firewall of censorship. Uh, a very strong top-down sort of authoritarian censorship regime uh, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, we don't quite have yet in Russia, although it's trending in that direction. Um, Are we going to continue to see it trend in that direction? Are we going to see Russia and China become even closer partners? Are we going to see the sort of authoritarianism that you see in China? Uh, A divergence from the kind of the westernized psyche of the Russians that they've experienced over the past... 20, 30 years? Uh, no, no, no. And that's that's why, but it was a very good question. Uh, that's why all these usual um, grievances of at least some of uh, people in Russia, and some by the West, it was quite popular at some point in time, probably 15 years ago, to say, oh, well, why didn't Russia do like China? Well, because there are not enough Chinese in Russia to do that. <laughs> uh, it's a two yeah. different countries, two different cultures. Russia is a very difficult piece, but still of the kind of European Christian... Does it think of itself as a Western country? In a no, sense? it thinks of itself as a separate civilization, but it only wants to be compared to the West. Hmm. It does want to be compared to China. Actually, this comparison will be quite weird, because a, a lot of things will not correspond to each other. I mean, China is a Confucian country. I'm not saying Chinese are incapable of democracy, look at Taiwan or Hong Kong, but what I'm saying is that the values are different, and they have to be transformed in a different way to adapt to, adapt to democracy. In this respect, probably Russia will have to adapt to democracy too, but it is an inheritor of Byzantium, Byzantine Empire, with its marriage of kind of the kingdom and the church. But I think that Chinese way will not work for another reason too, not only culturally. Um, Russia had its taste of freedom, relative freedom. Very relative, but still freedom in 90s and early 2000s. It's very difficult to roll this thing back. The the censorship is built into the Chinese model. What Putin has to do, he has to basically unwind what was already there. And people in Russia are digitally, those who want to access information are digitally savvy, they will use VPNs. If it's not VPN, it's going to be XYZ. But also, a third thing is important, corruption. Russia is quite well integrated into the global economy. And I'll give you an example um, of regulations already going sour. Uh, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, they issued uh, a government order that no one who either has a passport or citizenship or resides, legally resides, in the so-called unfriendly states, which is the United States, Canada, the European Union, a few others that kind of impose sanctions on Russia after, after this recent war. So people that have either residence permit or a passport in such countries cannot freely sell their property in Russia. They have to go and get a government permission, mm. which is an infringement of constitutional right. You know what happened 10 days after that? They said... It does not concern the residence permits. Only citizenship, and then we'll see. Maybe yes, maybe no. Because, well, you know, if you have a residence permit, you're still a Russian citizen. And I have, have that means that suddenly so many people realize, Christ, I mean, 
my daughter has a resident sperm and she has a penthouse on the Arbat near, near the Kremlin. If she wants to sell it, how are we going to go about it? I think that corruption is very helpful in such circumstances, <laughs> if I may say so. But it's going to be a regime that will be constantly, it's going to be like a swing. They will constantly fluctuate, swing between repression and this kind of desire to have a normal life. Mm-hmm. And th- this creates cracks in which ordinary citizens can, well, be relatively free from repression. And that makes the system rot away. That's because corruption dis- de- de kind of makes things disintegrate. So, so it sounds like you're hopeful in the long term. They're going to be in the future for quite a few years. Yeah. Well, Constantine, I think we have to leave it there. I appreciate you uh, staying a little bit extra. I really enjoyed the conversation. And what's the? And I want to say to excuse myself for being so better looking. I'm going through a mild COVID phase, so uh, please excuse my unshavedness. And that's that also goes to all the YouTube, uh, uh, (laughs) to the whole YouTube audience. Well, you you look great, and I appreciate it. I should tell our audience that I kind of forced Constantine to come on video, uh, so I apologize for that. I just wanted to, That's all right. you know, make sure our YouTube audience got got to see your smiling face. But uh, what can you remind our audience of your Twitter handle so that they can go ahead and follow that? Because I think that's the best place to go and kind of get your get your reporting, get your commentary. It is. Uh, I hope you'll put it kind of on the YouTube explanation sort of thing. But I'll, uh, I'll link it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, but um, it's K like kilogram, V like victory, O like Olga, N like Nicholas, E G G E R T K von Eggert. Uh, of course, with that. So yeah. that's my Twitter handle. Yeah, and maybe you'll start tweeting a little bit more in English now and make it easier I will, on us. <laughs> you push me, and of course, I'm going to tweet. Uh, uh, tweet this. Um, this uh, this podcast great well it'll come out next week for our listeners that should be the week of uh, I don't know, what, what week are we in these days uh, the week of April 11th so. Constantine I appreciate it and I hope to have you on again sometime again in the future Nico anytime thank you thanks so much for having me thank you this podcast is hosted produced and recorded by me Nico Perino and edited by Aaron Reese you can learn more about so to speak on twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or on facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast if you have any questions for me, Constantine, you can send them to so to speak at thefire.org and I can be sure to get them over to him. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever else you get your podcasts. We're on all the apps. Uh, they reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.